Two and a Half Admins, episode 22. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And you've got yet another of your articles to plug before we get started, Alan. Yes, uh, articles on my company's website, although I didn't write it. Mark Johnson did a great breakdown of how Swap works on FreeBSD and why you might still want it even in 2021. Right, well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes then. So let's do some news. Now, the first one is about Parler, or is it Parlay? I'm going to say Parler. It's Parler. Yeah, even though it sort of comes from the French Parlay, but let's just say Parler. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of this. I just want to get into the technicalities of it. Amazon pulled the plug on their AWS account, and they have been without proper hosting since. And I've read a lot of articles from people saying it's just not as simple as moving off AWS. Once you're in you're in, and it's very difficult to migrate away. So I wanted to hear what you two have to say about that. It can be really difficult. Uh, Parler claims that they did all the right things to make it not difficult. If you uh, if you really drink the AWS Kool-Aid and you know do every Amazon-specifically flavored service possible, then yeah, it'll be almost impossible to migrate yourself off of it. But they claim that they basically just set up you know perfectly vanilla VMs with perfectly vanilla services on AWS, which would make a migration as easy as it could be, but, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that it's easy to just, you know, take an entire production stack for a service that, you know, handles millions of people, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of concurrent logins and, you know, just, just cart it off someplace else and stand it up. Even performance issues aside, that's not a simple task. Yeah, like I think they were using Postgres database directly rather than using something like the Amazon Elastic database service, where obviously if you use the Amazon one, you're much more tied to Amazon and it'd be harder to move. Although I don't know how real some of the stuff I saw was, but I saw a list of requirements they sent out where they wanted like 96 machines with 256 gigs of RAM. And I'm like, there's no way your service needs that much infrastructure unless you built it really, really poorly, which is entirely possible, especially with something that, you know, gets stood up in a hurry uh, to compete with something and, and have a lot of traffic from the beginning. But did, did you ever actually log into Parlor, Alan? No, I let you handle that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no question that it was constructed incredibly poorly. Um, that thing had... Every earmark of the like contracted out development, you know, probably to an offshore firm for the lowest possible dollar. And um, there was also every indication that the folks who did the contracting really didn't have any idea which end was up either. Um, I mean, you know, things as simple as just looking at the the terms of service document that they had three different versions of live at the same time at wildly different URLs in various parts of the site, all of them conflicting. And uh, two of the three of them had a uh, an automatic generated word header still in them that uh, apparently was from like the day job of whoever was writing it. Uh, they they had an iPad, and the iPad was automatically generating headers with the logged in user's name, which was System Administrator, <laughs> on an iPad. Let that one sink in, <laughs> along with the timestamp and the MAC address of the device, which is why I believe it was an iPad because it had you know the the right uh, the the right vendor to to be the nick in an iPad. And it's not just that that header was there; they had shrunk it down to one point, which means that they couldn't figure out how to turn it off. So there's this little teeny tiny squiggly line that you can then just you know highlight and copy and paste elsewhere and read what it was. So this is the level of competence that we're talking about here. Yeah, like I've seen other places, things, you know, the PDF file that was generated from Word and has all the metadata stuck in the title and so on. But 
That's that's a new low. Yeah, and let's also talk about the fact that, um, again, you said you didn't log into it. I did. I spent some time in the service. And uh, like things as simple as embedded images worked a random but small percentage of the time. I would say probably one in four times somebody embedded an image in a post, it would actually render the way that it was supposed to as an image on the web page. And the other three quarters or so of the time, uh, you would just get a link directly to, you know, the parlor CDN that you would then have to, you know, like right click and open that in a new window so it didn't disrupt what you were doing there to see, you know, the, the crappy meme that somebody had posted. It was it's it was terrible. So this this is how Parler functioned when everything was fine and they didn't need to move anything and none of the underlying hardware was broken. Yeah. And, you know, I saw apparently somebody managed to go and scrape all of the images because they just numbered them sequentially or something rather than using a hash or something. Oh, oh no, not, not just all the images, all the posts. Yeah. Because when the uh, when the auth- when the authentication service went down. They had basically a uh, a fail closed rather than fail open condition, and when the auth service went down, uh, basically anybody could do anything they wanted. So some folks made themselves administrator, and you know downloaded absolutely everything that one could do if one was logged into Parlor as an administrator. Now, to be fair, we're not talking about rooting the server here. We're talking about logging into the service itself uh, with you know whatever that application deemed an ad, an administrator privileged account. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were able to do that trivially when the auth service was down and, you know, then just scrape everything. Yeah, which apparently included even deleted messages, which is fun. Yep, absolutely. When you deleted a message on Parler, it did not actually delete it. It just, you know, flipped a flag that said, oh, this is deleted, so maybe don't render it. And that was it. Just to be clear, you know, all, all this stuff that we're, that we're talking about, including, you know, being able to scrape everything by making yourself an administrator... This was by no means the first what the what security problem at Parlor. It's just the latest in a long line. So where are they going to end up then? Or are they going to end up? Or are they just gone for good? The rumors I saw is they're at some anti-denial of service host in Russia. The answer really is it's complicated. Their DNS right now is with Epic, which uh, you may remember as the place that uh, 8chan went after it got deplatformed. The parlor folks say, oh, well, they have no plans to move to Epic. They said nothing about the fact that the DNS for the landing page they have up now is, in fact, at Epic. When you look at the A record for that site and where it points to, that goes to a service I had never heard of before called DDoS Guard that's registered out of Belize, um, has a couple of Polish dudes registered as the admin contacts. And then when you look at the registrant of the AS for the net block, that actually points to, uh, I want to say somebody in Ecuador, uh, who also does not sound like an Ecuadorian native. So, you know, basically it's, it's, it's lies and BS all the way down is what it boils down to. They've been so monumentally deplatformed that surely it's going to be very hard for them to find hosting anywhere. I think it's going to be basically impossible to. I mean, they're facing the same thing that 8chan, which is now 8kun faced, and... 8chan was a vastly simpler service that provided services to a much, much, much smaller user base. You know, when it comes right down to it, what Parler basically is, is, you know, 8chan with a more boomer-friendly interface and, you know, a more boomer-friendly, much more mainstream and and therefore larger user group. So they're going to be going through the same things, but they need to be able to manage that and feed a much larger population from a much more unwieldy application. I don't know how possible that's going to be. Looking at what they wanted as far as infrastructure, they're definitely 
uh, asking for a lot from any hosting provider. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to find somebody who's got the resources to actually fulfill that bill that is willing to risk it on just, you know, immediately having basically the entire Internet gunning for them, looking to get their route killed, because that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, you can expect to actually see IP addresses become unreachable uh, and so on. And, that, you know, at that point, you're risking your whole business. It was in the early 2000s when they started getting much more militant about spammers. Be like, oh, we're just going to like completely disconnect your entire net block. Just because you happen to be using the same hosting provider as a spammer means you tell your hosting provider to either stop supporting spammers or find a better hosting provider. And, you know, Joe, I I know you said you don't want to get into the politics, and I'm not trying to do that as much as humanly possible. (laughs) But to put this into perspective again, remember how much difficulty 8chan had finding a home And the reason it had so much difficulty is, you know, because of the outrage generated from the fact that trying to put this as apolitically as possible, they hosted content that was positive towards uh, sporadic shooting events. In no way do I want to, you know, downplay the importance of that. But again, to put this in perspective, now you have people that don't want anything to do with Parler for similar reasons, but this time it's it's because because they were hosting content that was pro-overthrowing the United States of America. I mean, that's going to be pretty freaking nuclear to have in your data center. Yeah, you only have to look at the Pirate Bay and the problems they've had over the years, and all they do is steal a bit of content or you know break copyright or whatever, whereas this is a whole new level of deplatforming. Sure, although it's funny you bring that up, because the Pirate Bay has managed to stay up the whole time. That's because the Pirate Bay hasn't been, you know killing anybody or overthrowing any governments. It just, you know, wants to show you the latest crappy Twilight movie. And designed a distributed infrastructure so that getting deplatformed by any one hosting provider wasn't going to take them down, right? And being able to yeah. just have enough nodes and, and a fast flux and, and being able to basically be able to play whack-a-mole every time they knock you down. You just have more that you've already stood up ready to take over. It doesn't seem like Parler's short of money, though, right? It's, I don't understand this. Like, they've got a lot of people with deep pockets on their side of things. That doesn't necessarily equate to a good infrastructure or being able to get people that are good at infrastructure to work for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought they would have as much trouble finding people to work on it. Really? A lot of the people I know would definitely not want to have anything to do with it. But we, we've seen before that there are lots of people in Silicon Valley who are, have atrocious opinions and would be fine with it. <laughs> what makes you think they're willing to deal with those folks, though? I mean, the people in Silicon Valley are going to want to not only get paid a lot more for their development work, they're also going to you know, want to get treated as you know, people who have a say in things. Yeah. And again, I know we're not supposed to get into politics, but I very seriously doubt that's the dev team experience that the owners of Parler are really looking for. Yeah, so I guess the problem isn't just that Parler's already toxic as far as finding a, a lot of uh, people with the right experience, but they're also trying to do it on the cheap. They're not necessarily interested in building the right infrastructure so much as just having the platform and it being popular. Yeah, you know, it's it's the dev philosophy of you know, look, it it works. Walk away. It's fine. Yeah. Now we've we've all seen that before to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there have been times in my career I have functioned as the like you know 
the onshore wrangler of the offshore team for somebody. <laughs> That's very much what this whole thing has looked like from day one to me. You know, it looks like I contracted out. I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want to hear input from them. I just want to tell them this is the thing that I want and you build it and go. And, uh, you know, also it better not cost more than X amount. And once it's working, walk away. Don't care. It works. I can log in. I see the stuff. It's good. Why do you want to spend more of my money poking at it? Okay. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's talk about something a little bit less controversial. And that is Red Hat Enterprise Linux and CentOS. I thought you said less controversial. <laughs> <laughs> so Red Hat announced today that they are extending their free developer subscription to up to 16 systems. And this is being seen as trying to placate the community after the um, CentOS fiasco. Like I can see their point in the overall terms of like, hey, there's lots of people using CentOS. The ones that have fewer than 16 production servers, we're fine with them having it for free. But there are lots of places out there with a thousand server deployments and they should really be paying. I can I can see that as IBM's end goal with it. The fact that they did it in weird stages makes it seem like they didn't really think this all through. <laughs> I've seen some some fairly senior people in the organization swearing up and down that this was the plan all along. Mm. And, uh, you know, they, they just did things in a really strange, poorly thought out order. Yeah. Like I, I definitely would have said, Hey, you can get real red hat with up for up to 16 machines for free. And First, then a couple months yeah. later be like, Oh yeah, we're, we're not going to support sent to us until 2020, whatever. Yeah. But the, uh, the story that Matt DM is putting out there is that he's, he's talked to other people within the organization and, uh, this was always the plan, and he showed some link, which honestly I, I didn't click through to look at, that you know supposedly corroborates that this had been the plan for you know many months, but it just quote wasn't ready yet unquote. And um, if that's what he says, I, I have no reason to disbelieve him, but it definitely seems like uh, there there was there was a comment and uh, on my R's article about this that I thought was really well phrased. Uh, he said uh, you know this this looks like. This looks like sending the forklift guys into the warehouse with inadequate forklift training. Uh, you load things in the wrong order and you can't get everything back out again. Yeah, it definitely seems like they just didn't have the whole plan thought through. I can understand why they wanted to get the CentOS announcement out as soon as possible, because otherwise, you know, the cutoff date would have to be further out to give people enough notice. Oh no, how terrible if it was 2022 instead of 2021. I, I don't really see what the rush was there, personally. Yeah. Just overall, it feels like this plan was a bit rushed and they didn't think it through as much. Uh, But yeah, I agree that it it seems like this was their plan. And it's not that this is a a last minute reaction to it just because, 
you know, it's an existing program. They're just expanding this and a bunch of other things, just in general, the nomenclature has started to bother me. We have this concept of uh, a subscription and sometimes that means something you pay for. And sometimes that means just something where you get a periodic update or whatever, like, you know, subscribe on YouTube has meant just follow the channel for a long time, but now there's memberships, which is actually a subscription, but not subscribing. <laughs> and, you know, with this rel thing, it's like, well, you can have a paid subscription or you can have a free subscription. Uh, and the free subscription lasts one year at a time. And I understand their rationale for that with the GPDR and things like that, but it's a hoop you have to jump through every year, your service, but well, it's not quite true that your server stops working, but you certainly stop getting security updates if you forget to jump through the hoop just right. It can be kind of a pain to repair after the fact if, uh, you know, for example, if you're a mercenary sysadmin type and you come into a shop that has just let things lapse a year or two in the past and, you know, servers haven't been getting upgrades and like now you're just like jumping from scratch trying to figure out like, how, how do I just get this freaking thing where, you know, yum DNF, whatever package manager will work again. It's, uh, it's not fun. Do you look after any CentOS boxes then, Jim? Not on a regular basis. Every once in a while, one uh, one darkens my door and I deal with it at that time when I need to. I suppose I, I won't be <laughs> I won't be seeing many CentOS boxes from here on out, most likely. I was just thinking about mine, the video transcoders, and we might be right at the ragged edge of 16 production boxes. Although we're looking at not running so many of them with CentOS because we only need so many, you know, put two GPUs in, in one machine and run fewer machines. But yeah, this is going to be interesting. Have you considered just using Springdale, Alan? What's Springdale? Springdale is another uh, binary compatible build. Um, it's very similar to the deceased scientific Linux. Ah. Um, it's just run by a different university. It's been around for quite some time. I, I think our plan was either that or I think the original CentOS guy was doing another CentOS thing, Rocky Linux or whatever? Yeah, the Rocky Linux thing. The The difference is Rocky Linux is just an idea for the moment. There's right. literally nothing there, but like, I think they have a logo now. That's that's nice. Whereas Springdale has been around for years and has a community. There's also uh, Alma Linux, which is uh, something that Cloud OS sprung up. Uh, they basically already had a binary rel compatible, but it was not free as in beer. It was in service of whatever it is that CloudOS actually does, which I forget off the top of my head. But basically, the minute Red Hat announced the termination of CentOS and, uh, you know, the formation of CentOS Stream in its place, they said, hey, we're just going to, you know, rip out all of our specific bits out of our already existing, you know, binary role compatible. And we'll release that as a new, you know, free distro. I think in the end... Ours is because of this commercial software we're using. Uh, so it'll be whatever they say they support is what we're going to end up using, whether that ends up being RHEL or Ubuntu or whatever. But it won't necessarily work on CentOS Stream, though. Right, and it might not work on Stream. Like In our case specifically, it's a bunch of licensed video encoding stuff to do with patents and so on. So, you know, as part of the software license, they're paying a bigger license uh, to, to get these encoders. And then... They give us some binaries that are going to work with, you know, this one specific glibc or whatever. And if that's not the one that this version of Ubuntu uses, and if CentOS Stream starts updating more frequently, then it might not be what they use. Although, depending on what it is, Stream will be okay because it's Stream supposed to be like the preview of the next minor release of RHEL, right? So it'd be like, you know, 9.1 versus 9.2, where that's not something that would normally break this commercial software. But you never know. And some commercial software absolutely will be like, you know, no, this this is for RHEL, you know, 
8.3. We, we don't support 8.4 yet. And when that's the case, you know, you're going to be out of luck with something like stream because you're not only going to be on nine point, whatever the newest is, you're going to be a little bit ahead of that. What about falling into Red Hat's trap and just paying? Because this is a business use case, Alan. Surely you should just stump up the money. Well, we would rather not use Linux at all if we could get away with it. (laughs) (laughs) Blasphemy. And you can't hack something together then? Not really, because NVIDIA doesn't make their encoding thing for FreeBSD. They do the video driver, but not the NVENC stuff. I thought you'd be able to do it with jails or something, maybe. Or don't you have some sort of Linux emulation layer? I tried once, but it wasn't worth the effort. Especially for a business use case. And that comes back to this um, developer thing. Do people really want to use a developer subscription for production machines? A lot of people will. Yes, but and they, they specifically say this is for up to 16 production machines. The developer thing, I think, is slightly separate, meaning that rather than a personal account, you can actually have like a team account for this, where it, it's actually meant for a dev team to be able to use it rather than Something like a personal account where, you know, one person and you'd share a login or something crazy. Sort of, kind of. So this is a new program. It doesn't really quite exist yet until February. Um, we don't have all the details. But the way that they phrased it is that, um, so the dev team thing is not exactly free. The way I read it, at least, it's possible I'm, I'm making a mistake here. But um, I spent some time looking it over and it looks to me as though, what they're saying is for, you know, paying REL customers, you can attach a, a dev team to your existing paid REL subscription. And then everybody on that team can have their own free, you know, REL developer subscription account. And each one of those, from what I can tell, gets, you know, up to 16 production machines. In theory, you could stitch some crap together with like, you know, five different people's crap and, you know, maybe have 90 things running. But at the end of the day, you still really are running on somebody's dev subscription and it's not a sane thing to do. With that said, an awful lot of people out there do things that aren't very sane. I encounter people all the time who absolutely insist on using their Microsoft developer network licenses, you know, on, you know, server VMs in production. And it drives me insane. I'm like, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. You lose all rights to it if you screw up and forget to renew the subscription or they can change the terms out from under you and you know, you'll know you have no legal <laughs> infrastructure at all. It's a stroke of a pen. It's a terrible idea. You have 50 employees. Why does it chap your butt to spend $700 every five years you know, on a server license? And yet they don't. <laughs> So there's going to be a lot of people that take advantage of this. I wouldn't, but there will be lots of people who do. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into a Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's-eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies, and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins.
Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email, show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, then go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And there's options with PayPal and Patreon. And if you support us for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So do check that out. And thank you everyone who is supporting us. It's really appreciated. So Daniel writes in, like many people, I use a paid VPN service. However, they all seem to limit the number of devices you can use with the service at one time. Mine, for example, limits to five. But again, like many people, I have more than five devices. First world problems, I know. I recall in the past, it was mentioned that having your own VPS in the cloud running OpenVPN, etc., isn't necessarily the best idea in terms of privacy. And it's better to be in the mix, so to speak, behind a big VPN provider. I think you know what I mean, hard to put into words. So I was thinking of combining the two approaches. Run a VPS that can run the VPN that all my devices connect to. The VPS, in turn, then uses the paid VPN to send all my devices' traffic onto their respective destinations. I'd just like to know all of your thoughts on this. Good or bad idea? And any pointers on how to get it done or any resources I can look at, etc.? There's nothing specifically wrong with that idea. Uh, the worst thing wrong with it is that technically you're kind of playing fast and loose with the terms of service of the paid VPN that you're using. Uh, presumably they would really likely like for you to pay them more money if you are going to connect more devices and you're finding a way to not give them the money that you know they would like from you. So that's not the healthiest relationship. There's nothing wrong with it from the technical side. It's not particularly challenging. Spin up a $5 a month VM at Linode or DigitalOcean uh, install WireGuard on it, and it's basically the same config that you would use for um, a standard WireGuard VPN endpoint where you're natting all of your traffic you know, that comes in over the WireGuard tunnels and sending it out to the rest of the internet. The only difference is that rather than sending it to the rest of the internet directly, you're sending it through another, preferably WireGuard tunnel, but you could also use OpenVPN to your commercial VPN provider. Uh, your VPN provider has no easy way of knowing that you've connected more than one device because the only thing that they see is connections from this one IP address and everybody else is hidden behind that. So it certainly accomplishes what you want to do, whether you're happy with what you're doing with the spirit of your agreement between you and your paid VM provider. Well, that's between you and your paid VPN provider. Yeah, I think the only real downside to it is the extra latency. You know, you're adding an extra hop to every connection with that place where you're hosting your midpoint on this VPN is further away than your house is. You're, you're adding that much more latency or whatever and possibly a bandwidth limiter restriction there. But that's probably not that big a deal. If it is, depending on your use case, if you know you have five devices but you're usually doing it from home, then you could run some kind of machine to gather up all those connections and send them to the VPN from your house once to avoid the extra internet hops to go out to the VPN, uh, to the, the server provider and then to the VPN. But I guess it depends on what your use case is as well. Like, what are you using the VPN for? Exactly. To touch on that briefly, um, you may not need the the paid VPN provider. If your use case is, just to be clear here, like, you know, I maintain my own VPN endpoint that I use with my mobile devices. Um, all of their traffic 24-7 is routed over WireGuard to, uh, you know, a VM, uh, one of these, you know, cheap $5 a month VMs. And, you know, then from there out to the internet. And that services my personal use case, which is, you know, I may have my portable devices in a local network that I don't trust that, you know, I might not trust it because maybe it's somebody's, you know, sketchy ISP and they've been known to alter, you know, HTTP traffic or hijack, you know, DNS, 
or I might, you know, go in a coffee shop or something, or God forbid, you know, attend like an infosec convention where God knows who's wandering around with, you know, a Wi-Fi pineapple and might do truly horrible things, you know, with unencrypted traffic that they can touch. And just escaping that local network in that case, that's all I really need to do. So it doesn't matter then if all of my traffic comes from a VM in Linode or DigitalOcean that can very easily be attached to my name by, you know, like a law enforcement entity. I don't care. That's not what I'm trying to avoid. On the other hand, if your thought process here is, oh, you know, I want to BitTorrent, you know, all the movies. Obviously, we can't comment on the ethics of that, but, you know, it, the VPN out to a, uh, a provider, that doesn't suit your needs then because you're not hiding from those folks. You are actually painting yourself with a brighter target on your back because that that's one IP address that is always assigned to you every day, all day. And the only thing it is, is the VPN traffic you're sending through it. So you have to figure out what it is you're trying to avoid with the VPN and then work with it from there. Yeah. You know, I've just seen so many ads on YouTube and so on lately for VPNs or like, oh, you need the VPN or hackers are going to get your shit. And it's like, that's not how that works. <laughs> if you have a standard router gateway Wi-Fi majigger that most people have, it's doing that. And so nobody can make an uninitiated connection from the outside into your computer anyway. And so a VPN is not necessarily going to provide any more protection against hackers and so on. You know, it can provide more privacy uh, over, say, your ISP who likes to do uh, evil things or just look at what you're doing and, and things. Uh, the one that threw me off over Christmas, I was at my parents' house and, uh, you know, my phone switched to their Wi-Fi. Uh, but then the page I was trying to load had this giant banner from their ISP about how my dad had gone over his bandwidth quota for the month and was going to have to pay extra. <laughs> and I was like, why are they modifying web pages I'm trying to load? <laughs> and I can see why, yeah, that would make me feel like, hmm, maybe I do want a VPN. But again, in that case, all you would need is the VPN endpoint because you just need to escape your ISP. And once you've escaped your ISP, you've stopped caring. Exactly. If you're capable of and intending to set up, you know, a VPN endpoint in the cloud already, the only reason you would need the commercial provider then is if you want herd camouflage to prevent the people that you're actually contacting from having as easy a job of figuring out who you are from what IP it's coming from, because your traffic will be camouflaged in with, you know, maybe a thousand other people's traffic all coming from this IP address. So it becomes a lot more difficult to narrow it down to it was exactly you who contacted this. With that said, there are lots of ways to figure that out that are not tied to an IP address and a VPN absolutely will not help with uh, between browser fingerprinting and, you know, persistent cookies and, you know, super cookie methods and, you know, what have you that a VPN does absolutely nothing to help you with. So, yeah, you really do just have to consider your use case and what it is you're trying to keep from happening by using a VPN. All right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.